Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. This is Becky. Leave me a message. I'll call you back. Thanks. Hey, Mom. It's me. I am just working on this week's episode of 30 Pop, which looks back 30 years at the release of Back to the Future 2, which I love. And I was reminded of the first time I ever cussed in front of you and got in trouble for it. And it was when I was watching the first Back to the Future movie, and I quoted along with Marty McFly when he was racing away from the Libyans, let's see if you bastards can do 90. And I was probably seven years old or so, eight years old, and I remember you getting onto me, but I had no idea what bastards meant, and I just thought I'd share that memory with you. I love you. Talk to you later. Bye. From Mill U Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, Movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Bronner. This is Season 1, Episode 39, Hoverboards, Fancy Shoes, and Flying DeLoreans. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, November 25th, 1989. Hello friends and happy Thanksgiving week to you. We're inching ever closer to the close of both the year and the decade as we turn the clock back 30 years each week. And as I mentioned in the opening, this week we're looking back at a film that did the exact same thing. Back to the Future 2, the follow-up to the 1985 Michael J. Fox masterpiece directed by Robert Zemeckis and starring Fox and Christopher Lloyd, in which the clock is turned back and forward 30 years from 1985. It's one of my absolute faves, and we'll dive into that shortly. But first, I just want to catch you up on the rest of what was happening in pop culture 30 years ago this week. I'll start with music, as I often do. On November 20th, 1989, the fourth solo studio album from the incredibly talented Phil Collins, entitled But Seriously, released to huge commercial success with certified multi-platinum sales in 15 countries. In fact, reaching diamond status in France. It sold four times platinum in the U.S. and nine times platinum in the U.K., so people clearly loved it. But in its opening week, it did not reach the number one spot on the Billboard charts. And for the first time in several weeks, neither did Janet Jackson. Instead, the number one album in the country belonged once again to the six-time platinum-selling Girl You Know It's True by lip-syncing German pop duo Milli Vanilli. The album released back in March of 89 and had some summer success with its singles Girl I'm Gonna Miss You and Baby Don't Forget My Number, but it exploded 30 years ago this week off the success of its latest and arguably best single, the incredibly memorable Blame It on the Rain, which also claimed the title of number one single this week. In sports news, on November 22nd, Minnesota Twins center fielder Kirby Puckett signed a three-year contract worth $3 million, making him the highest-paid player in baseball just five days after Kansas City Royals pitcher Brett Saberhagen set that record with a contract worth exactly $33,333 less. Puckett would hold that record for an impressive 
six days. There was also a lot happening in the world of basketball at this point 30 years ago, and as we're counting down to the end of the decade, I thought it'd be fun to bring on some friends of mine, the hosts of one of my very, very favorite podcasts, Horse, which is a part of one of my very, very favorite podcast collectives, Multitude. Eric Silver and Mike Schubert to take a peek back at the late 80s NBA before either of them was even alive, as it were. Mike and Eric were in town this past week to record a live episode of Horse and Mike's other show, Potterless, each of which are well worth your time. So I invited them to stop by the studio and chat basketball. It was very fun. Here's our conversation. Mike and Eric, welcome to 30 Pop. Thanks so much for coming today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I found myself in Houston, and I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? Talk about the 80s. Nice. Okay, so as you hopefully know, what I do on this show every week, we look back 30 years at exactly that week in pop culture and what was happening. And so as we count down the end of 1989 and the 80s in general, I thought it would be fun to start bringing in some hosts of shows that I love, yours being one of them and talk about the 80s a little bit together. So before we jump into that, I want to hear, I want you to share with my audience a little bit about Horse, what it is, and hopefully they'll fall in love with it the way that I have. Sure. So Horse is a basketball podcast about everything except for the wins and losses. So we cover the NBA and the WNBA, but only the silly stuff. So just player drama, Twitter beefs, new uniforms, court designs, things that are happening that feel more like aspects of a reality TV show than watching yeah. a sport. The whole point is we just want to show that you don't have to be some dude bro sports head to follow the NBA. You can follow along on Twitter and understand the jokes that are happening in TV shows and what all of your favorite rappers are talking about. We're, so we try to be very welcoming and bring people in and just talk about silly, fun stories. A lot of Shaq play on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I can't get it up unless I talk about Shaq and Shaq play. Uh, yeah, we, we we really dedicate ourselves to making sure that everyone can enjoy our podcast from the most diehard sports fan who's been loving the same team for 30, 40 years, or someone who just realized that basketball is the one with the orange ball. Right. And uh, we think everyone's going to have fun. And actually, Horse is going to open for Potterless, which is why we're here in Houston. And Potterless is Mike's Harry Potter podcast. Yes. And I find it funny that we're going to hit him with a basketball podcast. <laughs> it's like, you have to sit through this presentation about basketball. You know, before. that might be exactly the right demographic, though. Like people that are, you know, exactly. total Harry Potter nerds yeah. may not really know basketball. I mean, the way we so. approach it, we're a part of a collective called Multitude for yes. all of our shows. And all of our shows, some sort of in some way talk about fandom and really when you're following a sports team or a sport as a whole it really does just feel like following a fandom at this point you have your favorite characters or your favorite players yeah, or like true. your guilds or your teams there's all sorts of stuff yeah. that you can follow it so i think that a lot of the ways that people approach harry potter from what i've done with potter you can see i have that same dedication towards the knicks and i'm heavily invested in yeah. frank nilakina's de- player development which always shocks me when i listen because you at least spent some of your youth in houston and you're not a rockets fan no i i spent my first 14 years of my life in new jersey okay, and my okay. dad was oh, okay. a huge knicks fan and then i moved to houston which is statistically the most fair weather sports town uh the <laughs> winning percentage and <laughs> attendance at there was a thing on reddit like i'm not bullshitting it's, no I, um, I, I believe you winning percentage in attendance across all of the major sports here is one-to-one. So when the teams are bad, no one goes. I remember I went to Astros games when I lived here where tickets were $4 yeah. and you could bring your own food. 
That's yeah. how little people cared about the Astros. And then now everyone's like, oh, my God, I love them so much. Yeah. Like, I moved mm-hmm. to Houston 10 years ago, and it was that the first couple Astros games I went to, first couple Rockets games, it was just like the stadiums were empty. Empty, completely And empty. now, I mean, it is so hard to get a ticket. So mm-hmm. love your show. I've been a fan. I think I'm kind of your perfect demographic. I always describe myself as like the artsy kid that grew up in a sports family. So okay. I grew up playing basketball <laughs> because I didn't have a choice. There was, you are there was, tall also. Yeah, and that's like, the, that's like the thing you do. And I, and I love the game, but... I don't follow the NBA statistically like really really close. Mm -hmm. I like watching games. And so your show is like perfect for me. It's like I get to hear all this stuff that I really, really love. But I understand that. I'm also seven foot three and I can dunk, (laughs) but I'm just like, oh, basketball's not for me, dad. Yeah. Okay. So now let's dive in. So we're going to talk about the NBA as we transition from the 80s to the 90s. You guys have done a little bit of work to Mm -hmm. research. Talk to me about it. Absolutely. So uh, something that we do on our show, we uh, have a segment called That Actually Happened, where we prove that something actually happened in the basketball world, because basketball as a microcosm and as a society and as a culture is bananas and has just as many ridiculous stories as you might assume. So we decided to pick uh, three interesting and ridiculous stories that we found from the 1989 to 1990 season. Do we get to hear that that actually happened? Oh, we have the like jingle. We have like a wind chime. (laughs) (laughs) So we just Googled specifically because you mentioned 8990. Things that happened in that season. The, we'll start with the one that I think is the the quickest to go through, but seems strange that it took until 89 for this to happen. It was not until the 1989-1990 season that the shot clock also went by tenths of a second in addition to the game clock. Oh, my gosh. So before that season, it would just be full integer numbers. Yeah. And then when the shot clock was over, it was over. But then FIBA had been doing it, and then the NBA adopted it so that – Instead of just being two, three, one, or sorry, <laughs> instead of three, two, one, it'd be like two, one, nine, two, one, eight, two, one, seven, all the way down. And it was funny because that change, though it was more accurate in certain ways, led to some confusion during the season. There was specifically a game against my beloved New York Knicks. They were playing, I think it was playing the Hawks or the Celtics, somebody in the East. And there was a stoppage on the shot clock to where it got to 0.1 second. And that's when they had to institute the rule that's in the NBA now where the shortest amount of time you can catch and release a shot is 0.3. And if it's anything below that, you can only tap it and not gather the ball at all. So that was something that they had to figure out the hard way just during the year of, oh, man, what does 0.1 seconds mean? Can you do anything in that time period? So it's funny because I remember, you know, I grew up and I'm significantly older than you. I'm sure y'all weren't even alive 30 years ago. Is that right? No, almost. I didn't think so. So I remember going to like Mavericks games when I was a kid Mm -hmm. and I never really noticed that the shot clock changed. That wasn't a thing that I noticed, but I do remember there only being, you know, whole number integers on the clock. That's funny. Yeah, it's got to be confusing because it's strange because when we're talking about such small increments of time that you think, oh, 0.3 seconds, that's not very long. But mm. that is how quickly it takes some of these guys to shoot the ball. Usually they have to rush it. But Steph Curry's normal release is 0.3 seconds, right. which is bonkers. So if you have a full integer, the difference between one second and half a second late game is yeah. huge. That mm. is the difference between being able to take a step, take a dribble, like jump in the air, or do whatever. Yeah. And the fact that they went so long with just being like, well, it's 
but sometime between one and zero. I don't know, coach. I'm going to catch it and throw it. If only we had some way to divide numbers. And that's what's so weird is that the other clock did it. So it's like, we're doing it right there. Like, look up an inch and we're already doing it. So, yeah, that was the first thing that we found in the 89-90 season. All right. That was a new development. Uh, I want to do the I want to do the fun one. I want to do the cool. one. Uh, so our second one is I want to talk about two teams that joined the NBA Union in the 1989 season. Okay. One is the Minnesota Timberwolves, and the other is the Orlando Magic. Yeah, so we just talked about them. It was 30 years ago last week. They were losing their first game. Both of them lost their inaugural game. And exactly. so, oh, so sad, so sad. My, I like the way you said NBA Union. <laughs> I, I was like, the, M, the NBA family. They were teams that got to play basketball. Yes. <laughs> like I said, the NBA Union. Uh, what I wanted to focus on is the names that almost were the names oh, of these mm-hmm. uh, teams. Notoriously, whenever the NBA or any sports team really uh, wants to get an expansion team, the owner always does like a poll in the local newspaper. Yeah. And you'll see sometimes they're real and sometimes it's bullshit. And other times it's bad. And your team is named the Toronto Raptors because Jurassic Park came out that year. That's hilarious. And do not besmirch the name of, of Steven Spielberg's creation. It's a bad name for a basketball team. It's very funny. <laughs> it's better uh, than the Pelicans. So. But that's their state bird. But like that's like pride. Well, this is what I'm getting into. So Minnesota is much like the New Orleans Pelicans is that they had a vote and it came down to two different uh, – they had a vote in the local paper and it came down to two separate – team names. One was the Timberwolves and the other one was the Polars. Both mm. interesting. Polars, I think, is less good, but Timberwolves is also, like, very esoteric. Is it Polars with an A or an E? Polar, like, like, cold. So, Polar with an A. Yeah. Okay, not like guy with a pole. Like, Hello, yeah, I am a Polar. <laughs> Hello, I'm from Duluth, and I have a pole. I kind of like that. It'd be a fun logo. Like, dude with a pole. Is that a spear? No, it's a pole. No, I'm just gonna, I probably have a pole arm, I'm not gonna fuck you with it. They could have pole vaulting halftime shows? Yeah. Mike, this sounds like something you need to do at NBA 2K20, so you can just do that yourself. Mike is now miming, doing full vaulting. You can't see that because this is a podcast. <laughs> so, so the Polars, uh, so they came down to those two names, uh, and then the uh, new owner uh, went to each of the city council people, over 400 of them, to vote which one was which, and they decided that from a two-to-one split that the Timberwolves was going to be the name of the team because – what is it? In the lower 48 states, there is the highest population density of Timberwolves, the gray wolf. What is it? Like Canis lupus is the scientific name. I looked this up, Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> um, take your word for it. <laughs> thank you. Is That's the, the highest concentration of that. And I'm like, okay, cool. So the other thing, because we're going to Florida, here's what happened with the Orlando Magic. Yay. They had a poll, and people suggested a lot of interesting things. They said the heat. Which origin? Which <gasps> the Polars with two L's? It's a whole other thing. <laughs> Someone with a clipboard. <laughs> Who would you like to vote for in the primary? <laughs> that okay, that have to be if Ohio amazing. gets a team. Or <laughs> have to be the Polars. Florida in two thousand. That would <laughs> work. That's a different chads. podcast. This is the eighties podcast, Mike. So they said the Heat, but that ended up going to the Miami team. They also had uh, another one, which I cannot remember. They had the Tropics, which the was Tropics. an old school Thank you. team mm. that was not in the NBA. And then the one that they should have picked was the Juice. The Juice. They Ooh. would have been the OJ. The Orlando mm. Juice. It would have been amazing. And then 11 people voted on the Magic because of Disney and its association yeah. and everything. The issue with this is that 
the main investor in the new Orlando team, went with his seven-year-old daughter to Disney World and then decided that Magic was a good name because 11 people and a seven-year-old said it should be the Magic. Yeah. I also think the dollar signs told him, ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, did he think, he's like, ah, if I half associate myself with Disney, they're going to, like, throw money at me? Like, the mouse is going to bless me? No, but he thought people would just be like, oh, we're going to Orlando to go see Disney World. Let's also see the Magic game because oh. Magic, that's fun. I think at that point, especially because they had just made the big expansion in Disney World, mm. that was just, the 90s was all, like, that's when it was peak. What are you going to do now that you've won the championship? I'm going to Disney World. Like, and then when that team came to be, that was just peak. We want to align ourselves with Disney as much as possible. And I, that's what they were going for. It's just. And I'm confident they were fully affirmed in that a few years later when OJ was driving away in a white Bronco and they <laughs> yeah, the I, OJs. I, I mean, think looking back to not be the OJs probably worked, but it would be more fun if when people say juice, the first thing you think of is, ah, yes, Orlando's local basketball association. Yeah. And not David Schwimmer going, juice, <laughs> juice, juice. I still think OJ. I would love. I imagine what that jersey would look like. It would be beautiful. Yeah. Just I. I. It's like all black with I feel like purple piping and then just like a big orange in the middle. I would. I would love that so much. And maybe the orange is also a basketball. Mike. Yes. Have you considered? It would, be both an, it would look like an orange, but then have the lines. Yeah, that Mike. Would be, because they're both orange round circles. Uh, it's a I golden don't know opportunity. If you noticed wasted. it. Say so they picked the Orlando Magic, which boring. Yeah. So expansion teams in 89 and always may or may not choose the best name for them. Yeah. Okay. Number three. Number three is two (laughs) new players that came into the league during the same year. Two extremely Eastern European players who uh, took the league by storm. They had successful careers overseas and then went into the league starting that year. So the two most prominent players were Drazen Petrovic Mm. of Croatia and Vladi Divac of... Oh, Yugosla- he represented Yugoslavia, but he is from originally, I believe, S- he is Serbian. Okay, cool. I didn't <laughs> want to misspeak. So they both joined the league in the 89-90 season, and Eric had a bunch of research about Drazen. He is someone that had an incredible career over playing for the Yugoslavia team when that was a thing. And what was it? He was 15 years old when he played on the national team. He joined. So, you know, every country has their own kind of like basketball league. So he got to the top level of the Yugoslavian league when he was 15. That's incredible. When he was 18, he joined the national league and was a part of it. He, uh, there's a funny story that his team led by an 18 year old Drazen, got to the championship and won it, but because of referee tampering, uh, they took the championship away, but then his team didn't want to do a rematch, so they just forfeited the whole thing, because Eastern European basketball is hilarious. He uh, has won tons of medals. He got a bronze medal in the Olympic Games for... So he got one... He got Olympic medals for Yugoslavia and for Serbia. That's how long he was balling for. So he got a bronze medal and a silver medal for Yugoslavia and a silver medal for the Olympic Games in Barcelona. He also got a gold medal in the FIBA World Cup in 1990 playing in Argentina. And he got the bronze medal four years earlier in Spain. And this is Vladimir, this is Drazen. 
This Drazen. is Drazen. Drazen, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Drazen also, uh, he, so in 1989, he came to the States. The Blazers had drafted him in the 60th pick in 1986, and then finally he came over. Uh, he played with the Blazers. He was on the bench, but then he really broke out uh, with the New Jersey Nets. It's really funny seeing him with, like, the really blue and the really red Nets jerseys. Before they destroyed all their colors and were like, let's be gray and navy. Because Jay-Z said so. Well, before then, Jay-Z was like, we're going to get rid of all colors. I feel like, <laughs> oh, f- Black and white only. I'm moving the team to Brooklyn. Just kidding. I'm an agent now. Ha <laughs> <laughs> uh, Unfortunately, and this is kind of a bummer, which is why I want to get this out of the way. He died in a car crash in 1993. So he's still known as kind of like this legendary European player because of the lost potential. Kind of similar to another uh, Eastern European player, Arvin Sabonis. Arvidas. Arvidas Sabonis. Thank you. I had so much trouble pronouncing that. I did it in the car and then Mike corrected me and I still didn't get it. Um, who lost out on a lot of his potential. He played a lot of, a lot of time in Russia and in Eastern Europe. And then when he came to the United States, he just was a shell of his former self. Mm. But like people mythologized him in like world play, in world and Olympic play. So, uh, his number is up in the New Jersey rafters is number three. Uh, he was recognized by the Olympic committee as well. And, uh, it's kind of a, it's a sad story ultimately, but, um, he is this legendary player. Like there's a museum of him mm-hmm. in Serbia now. Yes. Croatia. Oh, sorry. In Croatia. Yeah. So there's a whole museum devoted to him. And the, what sucked is that in that 1993 season, his last one before he you know, died in the car crash, he was on the NBA all third team. So he was playing really well. There was some drama around it. Uh, about he had it's perceived so that his teammates did not like him, so he was considering leaving the NBA. He was going to leave it and go to like just play in a Greek league because he didn't see how any of the leagues were different. He's like, I'm just going to go to one that's going to pay me and respect me because I'm a baller. And then, unfortunately, listen, I just don't understand the autobahn. Like it was so the he was driving back to Croatia. It was wet on the autobahn, and then a, a semi pulled out like slipped in front of his car and then that's what and that's what happened that's so awful. nothing about europe or european basketball makes any sense to me mm-hmm. but yeah drazen's great one day i would like to go to croatia i've never been but i going to that museum is number one and my fiance soon to be wife will be probably grumpy about it She'll be like why are we going here this place is gorgeous i want to go to the museum <laughs> i've never wanted to go to any museum before hey croatian tourism board we got yeah, you we're here for I'm it next sponsor right there mm, that'd be great oh wow <laughs> listen germany's been like double downing on uh, have you seen this they've been doing just like tourism board spots on a bunch of different podcasts it's yeah. like a little weird it's all about like their relationship with the united states and how great tearing down the Berlin Wall, wall was. Oh, yeah, because Nazis strange. are back in America, so they're it's, feeling the heat. I mean, you would think that would be true, but I think it's more just like some sort of, I don't know who's paying for it, but it's like, just so you know, the United States and Germany are close. So, Croatia, get at us. Let's do it. American Basketball Podcast. We would love to go. So the other player is Vladi Divac, and Vladi had, again, an illustrious career where he got silver medal in the 88 Olympics. He got bronze and gold in the FIBA World Cup. He's gotten multiple gold medals in FIBA Eurobasket. There's also a fun tournament called Universiade, where he played for a team called Zagreb, and they won the gold in 1987. So they're killing it. That's when you have to play basketball and you sing at the same time. <laughs> so he was on a team called KK Partizan, and that's where he really started to flourish and make a name for himself. He 
it was so funny because he's a tall dude. He's like seven feet tall, big guy, traditional center looking. But what made him unique is that he was actually good at shooting the ball and dribbling. And back in the late 80s, that was very confusing oh, yeah. Yeah. to be like, what? You can actually move? You're mobile? He would do all these funky shots. He'd do all these fun post moves where he would fl- do shots like almost behind his head or whatever. But he also did quirky things. Takes notes that, quote, his quirky moves complemented how he liked playing gags on the court in the 1989 Eurobasket. He lifted teammate Zoran Radovich for a slam dunk. So he picked up one of his friends to help him dunk the ball in a game. That sounds great. And then he ended up being drafted by the Lakers. I thought he was a Laker, right? I, I, I can picture his face, but I couldn't picture his jersey. So yeah, yeah, so he was, he was originally on the Lakers for a couple years. But then he moved on to the Charlotte Hornets as part of the Kobe Bryant trade. Oh. So to get Kobe's spot because... The when Kobe was going in the draft, he told the Hornets who had that pick, he was like, I'm not going to play in Charlotte. You guys kidding me? You better <laughs> trade this pick. I will refuse to sign because that was back in a time when rookies would just not sign their contracts and do all this other stuff. So very Kobe Bryant move. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's true. If, I don't know if that would foretell anything, maybe in his life and his ability to, you know, associate with others. But if only we had some sort of precursor to tell us he was going to be an inconsiderate man. So he was. A very well-respected player in that league. He had been in the league for five years, very solid, good center. So that trade didn't seem as bad at the time because the Hornets are getting a really solid center. But then Kobe Bryant became Kobe Bryant. So, right. But he ended up playing for the Hornets for two years. And then he ended up, before going on to the Sacramento Kings, he, during the lockout, played two games with KK Krivenazvedzvda. <laughs> Two games and then the lockout ended and he was like, bye guys, I'm going back to the NBA. <laughs> so then he, as a free agent, he signed with the Sacramento Kings and he ended up playing with them for a couple years before returning to the Lakers for two years and then retiring. So bounce around a little bit, but now he is the president of basketball and general manager for the Sacramento Kings. Really? Okay. Yeah. And so- he's doing a okay, four out of job. five out of ten job. He started off not great. Now as the as the GM, he made some strange moves and some weird draft picks and all of that. But he actually ended up doing pretty well in the Demarcus Cousins uh, Buddy Heald trade, which yeah. at the time looked bad. And then now Demarcus Cousins has been injury plagued his whole career. And Buddy Heald is very good at shooting. I just can't believe that he's still there because the owner of the Kings are just asshole assholes the maloofs are like the worst they're not the owners anymore are they not it doesn't know it's been vivek for okay i I thought it was vivek but then i forgot about that oh sorry james dolan is the worst owner vivek is vivek is just a lovable goof he's an impulsive man that's what i was trying to say is that vivek is an impulsive man and the fact that vladi has ridden this whole thing out there was a lot of palace intrigue in there so like just i just like that there's this seven foot tall like eastern european man who's just like I don't know. I have not talked to any of them about what, what they want to sign. I just yeah. I make trades. There, were, yeah, there were rumors because early on he made some really bad trades. There were rumors that he didn't know how trades and stuff worked, like pick protections, <laughs> which are a big thing now. When you trade a first round pick, you can say, "Oh, you get this first round pick if it falls between fifteen to thirty, but if it's mm-hmm. in the top fifteen, we get to keep it because that's very good." And Vlade, when he made a bad trade to try to clear up cap space, just didn't do that. Just traded away the picks unprotected. <laughs> And I was like, what are you doing? Nobody does that anymore. Everyone at least puts it at like top one protected or you something. Gotta bonkers. protect it. Gotta protect yourself. Always protect. So yeah, when you're engaging, when you're engaging in basketball relations, 
always protect yourself. Yeah. So Drazen and Vlade joined the league in 1989, and I think the the league was better for it. I, I think late in the 80s was really a hard time for these European players to come over. And you look at both of these guys, they didn't come over to the NBA until they both had very solid, illustrious careers overseas. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, the NBA goes, okay, you are destroying it. Now you can come over. Whereas now in the league, we get Luka Doncic, who is very young and plays good for two years at age 17 and 18. And you're like, let's hope it works. And then it does. So I, I'm, I'm happy with these specific players because I really think they paved the way for people later on, like Arvina Sabonis, like a Dirk Nowitzki, like all of these European guys, Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker, all these people coming over. Mario (laughs) Hazonia. But I, I think it's nice that they kind of set the course because they're both great players. Obviously what happened to Drazen is very unfortunate, but Vlade was always fun in the league. And I'm glad that he's figuring it out more as a general manager now, because he was always an important part of my 90s basketball fandom so i don't want to see him be incompetent i'm glad he's doing a little bit better at his job i think the nba in the going from the 80s into the 90s there were still a lot of growing pains like the 80s was very tough for the nba and i think they really started finding its footing in the 90s but that had to happen with change you needed to have expansion teams that had terrible players and maybe not so great names you needed to invite players over that you think you can take a chance on and sometimes you need to make sure your clocks are the same (laughs) to do the same (laughs) counting so the nba was really trying to write itself as it went into uh, the 90s. And I think that these few events uh, really symbolize that. So we get clocks, we get the Eastern European Revolution, and we get new expansion teams. I mean, that actually happened. That that actually happened. happened. That's what I was looking for. Thank you guys so much for being on. I'll put links in the show notes for your shows and hopefully point everybody over there. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for having us, man. Of course. It was really fun. Always good to talk about basketball minutia any chance we get. So to have an excuse in a very nice studio in Houston makes it great. This That's has been true. very fun. I'm drinking bubbly water and talking about the basketball. What else do I need? <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks so much. We'll see you all next time. Seriously, though, I love those guys and the work both they and the collective with which they're associated are doing. Go check them out at the links in the show notes for this episode. Now, finally, on to the main event. One of my all-time favorite movies, truly, Back to the Future 2. I was excited this week to learn that this is my friend and occasional production assistant Salman Varani's very favorite movie, so I invited him to step out from behind the mic for once to reminisce with me. Sal, welcome to 30 Pop. Thanks so much for being on today. Appreciate it, Luke. Great to see you. So you helped me out this past week at Trivia Night, and it wasn't until that time, even though I've known you for like a couple years now, I had no idea that you're like a diehard Back to the Future 2 fan. Facts. Yeah. I mean, literally the desktop on my laptop is a picture of the Nike Air Mags. The uh, the auto lace shoes. Yeah. And that's how I knew. I was like, oh my God. It was just such a sort of serendipitous moment for me because I also love Back to the Future. I love all the Back to the Futures, but I specifically love Back to the Future 2. And I've been trying to figure out, like, who am I going to bring on to talk about this? Who's going to love this the way that I love it? And then I saw your wallpaper, and it was... It's my favorite movie of all time. Total fanboy of Back to the Future Part Two to the point where, like, I've invested in the hat that Marty wore... Or Marty Jr. wore in Back to the Future Part Two. Invested in some uh, Nike Air Mags 
even at Comic-Con invested in like a mystery box of just Best of the Future. Paraphernalia. Yeah, items. Yeah. And So one of the items in that box was a belt. Are you wearing the belt today? I am wearing the belt today. <laughs> I'm so yeah. glad to know it. Yeah. I'll have you model it later on. <laughs> so, okay. So I know why I fell in love with this movie, but I would love to hear your story of like, when did you see it? What was it about this movie specifically, especially out of the trilogy? What is it about this one specifically that you just cling to? So... Aside from, you know, kind of seeing a glimpse of like, oh, this is what the future might possibly look like, you know, like that unknown and the storyline as far as Marty, you know, trying to take advantage of knowing the future of all sports games outcomes and tying in part one to part two. And just as a whole, you know, it was just a, a movie that I immediately fell in love with. And again, it's like my favorite movie of all time. So, okay, so the premise for folks who maybe haven't seen it in a long time, basically we end Back to the Future 1. Marty has sort of saved the day. He's you know made it back to 1985, and life is actually better because of the way things worked out for, for his mom and dad when they were teenagers because of him. His life when he came back to it is better. He walks outside. His friend, Dr. Brown, pulls in in the time machine DeLorean and they fly off to the future. Says they have to go save his kids, basically. He and Jennifer's kids. Now, this is one thing that like really kind of bothered me. I rewatched the movie last night and you got to understand, like I keep this movie like high on a pedestal. It's one of my all time favorites. I rewatched the first one and the second one over the last couple of days. Right. And when I started the second one, I was immediately disappointed that like the acting like doesn't hold up the way the first movie does. The first movie is perfect. Start to finish. It's perfect. And then I didn't realize until I was doing the trivia stuff, it had never dawned on me that it's a different Jennifer. And, you know, Elizabeth Shue comes in as Jennifer and they had to reshoot all of those closing scenes from the first movie with her in them. And it's just not as good. Like they're just, she's playing another actress. Do you know what I mean? Right. That didn't hold up for me at all. That being said, the story still totally does. The movie still totally does. So they go to the future like you said, he he buys this Gray's Sports Almanac, which gives you all of the results of sporting events from 1950 to 19 or to 2000, I think, or 1955 to 2000. And Biff, the villain from all three movies, steals the book, steals the time machine, takes it back to his younger teenage self, and so Marty and them have to go back to 1955 to recover this Sports Almanac to change the future. Right. So that's the premise, which I still love. I still, I think they did an incredible job with it. I mean, they, so you, you get to see one thing that was different about this is you get to see Michael J. Fox playing multiple characters. So he plays his like 47 year old self. He plays his 17 year old self. He plays his 17 year old self in 1955. Like you get to see all these different versions. He plays his daughter. He plays his son. You know, he he plays, I guess, five roles at least in this movie. Right. Which is incredible. And to think that he wasn't even originally cast to yeah. play Marty is yeah. just mind-blowing. Well, but. one of the things I learned when I was doing the trivia for this is he, he didn't know that there was a second movie until he watched the first one and it said to be continued. And he immediately called his agent and was like, am I in this? Like, did I, am I, like, is this happening? Yeah. But that's how he found out that there was even going to be a sequel. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. So good. Okay, so what are some things that jump out at you as particularly nostalgic 
from Back to the Future 2. Nostalgic. Yeah. Like, so for me, as soon as I saw that beautiful pink hoverboard, I just flooded with nostalgia because I remember just thinking that was so amazing. And actually, that still does hold up. The way that they shot the various hoverboard scenes of him, like, hanging onto cars and, like, you know, bouncing off walls and stuff, like, it still looks pretty freaking great. Yeah. Whereas, like, the flying DeLorean... Not so much. Visually, just doesn't hold up for 30 years. Yeah. But the uh, the hoverboard totally does. Yeah, for sure. So that's one for me. The Air Mags, obviously, his Nikes, his all of his clothes, his like self-drying, self-fitting clothes. That's right. just like, that whole outfit is nostalgic for me. Which they're actually working on, or there's been patents really? put out for auto-drying jackets. The jacket, nice. Yeah. Finally, right? Yeah. 2019. Even like seeing Gray Sports Almanac. There's something about just that that image. It's so familiar to me from my I see I was nine years old when this came out and I did see it in theaters. I remember going, you know, it was a friend's birthday party we went and saw this movie. And I remember, you know, as soon as it ends, you learn to be concluded, you know, pops up on the screen and you see this like trailer and you find out that like Back to the Future Three is coming in like seven months. It was summer of nineteen ninety that it came out. So we're definitely gonna talk about it again. But yeah. I remember that experience and just being so freaking excited that there was already you know they were they were clearly had already shot the third movie so are you a fan of the first and third movies also the first one definitely i mean if we were to do like like you mentioned earlier like a you know a comparison of the three acting wise storyline wise yeah number one is so clean yeah part two tying in you know scenes and flashbacks from part one and just mingling the timelines and adding timelines Mm -hmm. Storyline wise, I enjoyed number two, like obviously more than all three. And then the third one, I remember when I first watched it, I was extremely disappointed. Yeah. Right. Like, again, the whole appeal of part two for me was just like the future, the future, the unknown. Like, are we really going to have flying cars in 2015? Like, how old am I going to be in 2015? Like, can I afford a flying car in 2015? And then, you know, part three, at the time when I watched it, I didn't realize the different ways that they tied in so many storylines of the characters. Yeah. And to me, it was just like, oh, it's like a Western. Yeah. That, but then you go back and watch the second one and you realize like there's like foreshadowing. You know, he's watching the Clint Eastwood movie and there's like the scene of the bulletproof vest, which is a theme that makes it through all three films, which I love. Right. And so they actually do tie it really well. In fact, when I was watching the first one a couple of days ago, one of the things I noticed that had just never dawned on me before, you know, the opening scene of the first one, it's showing all of the clocks in Doc Brown's lab. Right. There's just clocks everywhere. That on one of those clocks is Doc Brown hanging from the hands of the clock. No way. That's yeah, like a, yeah, that's like it's like a clock that he had made or whatever. But it's part of that opening scene. And you would never notice it. It just looks like, you know, in this thousands of clocks, it just looks like a random... It's an Easter know. egg. Yeah, so good. And there's so much of that stuff in there. Yeah. I think the first one, like I said, the acting in that one, Marty is just so much more believable. And he's like one of those like ultimate 80s characters. He's just like, he's so freaking cool. Yeah. But then in the second one, it's not as natural. Like he's playing this sort of caricature of who he was in the first one. And it's still good. There's still like, there's still moments that are of greatness with him, but not nearly as many as in the first movie. I've got to rewatch the third one this week too, just to finish it off. But for sure, but it's kind of the same for me. Like I, in my memory, I love the second one best, the first one second and the third one last. Yep. Now I think they're just progressive. I think the first one's the best one. I mean, it's just so freaking good, but I still 
Love, love, love. Second one. Same. Well, man, thank you for coming on. I'm so glad to know that I have a kindred lover of this movie. It's so freaking good. Even though it's not as good as I remembered it being, it's still so freaking good. So, Sal, thanks for coming on. Uh, appreciate it, Luke. Anytime. We'll see you. Huge thanks to Sal for being a part of this episode and for sharing my deep, deep love for this movie. One thing I should say, after we recorded this conversation, I restarted Back to the Future 2 again, and I take back what I said. Those early re-recorded scenes are actually great when you don't watch the first and second film back to back. I was wrong. If I had a time-traveling DeLorean, I would absolutely go back and tell my past self not to say what I said. But, alas. Anyway, thanks also once again to Eric Silver and Mike Schubert of Horse, Potterless, and Multitude for being a part of this episode. We chatted for a while after the mics were off, and they were able to offer some really helpful advice for me as I try to make my own company, Milieu Media Group, all that it can be. Friends, I'm at a bit of a crossroads right now where I can either really, really go for it with this company or where I can take a step back and make podcasting just a hobby. If you love this or any of the shows I produce, and if you want to see this thing go to the next level, as I do, click on the Patreon link in the show notes and partner with me for as little as $1 a month. I'll give you behind-the-scenes access to my whole journey of getting this company off the ground. I'll also give you occasional episodes of my new patron-only show, Smokes, which is very fun. For now, thanks so much for listening to this episode. As I've said before, you're the reason this show is so fun to make. I'll see you next week for episode 40. Until then, let's see if you bastards can do 90. Sorry, Mom. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Milieu Media Group, visit milieumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1989 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com.